Hey, Hello PhD listeners. I hope your holiday season has been relaxing and hopefully filled with some time to do things that bring you joy. On our last episode, we posted a repeat show from April 2017, where we discussed the topic of imposter phenomenon and how it can manifest in graduate school. This week on the show, we're going to revisit an interview we did that was a follow-up to that episode with Dr. Maureen Gannon about strategies you can utilize to overcome these imposter feelings. Before we get to the show, and as we wind down 2022, this ends our eighth year of doing Hello PhD. I don't think Dan or I, either one, would have imagined we'd have kept going this long, but really it's because of you, our listeners, who write in your questions week after week or show us your support by emails or tweets, and, and especially when you drop us a note saying how much a particular episode helped you work through something in grad school or in your career. That's why we do this show, and that's why we do what we do. You know, we both think science is really important and can be rewarding, but unfortunately, it can also be stressful and full of issues, many of them systemic, that can make training really difficult. We hope this show not only helps you navigate those potential pitfalls, but also realize you're not alone. You can do this, and maybe in some small way, we can make science training better for everyone. So on behalf of Dan and myself, we wish you the happiest of New Year's, and we will be back with you in 2023. This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. By avoiding failure, you also avoid success. Just to realize ultimately you're the one who has control of your path in life. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk with a successful academic who overcame imposter syndrome to achieve her career goals. She shares practical tips that can work for you. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 71. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan, I'm feeling good today. Josh, it's good to hear. What happened? Just got back from vacation. I went on a Disney cruise with my family. How many times did you hear Let It Go sung by Elsa? Oh, man, more than one. Yeah, I believe you're correct. But Dan, you're probably not surprised to know that being on a Disney cruise for a few days, I needed some beer. Yeah. Okay, so you found some beer on board? I did. I actually remember um, from a previous cruise I went on years ago that... The cruise ship was kind of a beer desert. They had the Coors Light and the Miller Light and the Bud Light and all that. So I wasn't, wow, wow. I did not have high expectations. So, you know, I'm like in the Caribbean and the sunshine and the sand. And so I felt like I wanted something lighter, you know, something like a Corona. A Corona, a red stripe, uh, something. Yeah, something like that, but maybe less crappy. Okay. <laughs> what did you find? Well, so what I found was the... No offense to Corona or red stripe. I drank several of these... Kona Brewing Company Big Wave Golden Ales. Now, Kona says to me, Hawaii. We've had a Kona beer on the show, haven't we? Uh, I don't know if we have, but I actually said on the cruise ship, Dan, because I'm always thinking about the podcast, of course, even when on vacation. So after drinking several of those, I was like, we should drink this beer on the podcast. But I didn't know how prevalent this beer was. I'd never noticed it before. Uh, but my wife came home from the grocery store with a six-pack of Kona Big Wave Golden Ale. So like Not even the, the bottle shop, the actual just grocery store. Yeah, it's at the wow. grocery store, so apparently pretty easy to find. So anyway, that's what we're drinking. It says liquid aloha on the bottle. Actually, this is the first time I've seen a bottle 
of it. Yeah, this is at least the Kona and the Aloha is leading me to believe Hawaii. Did you actually look up where it came from? Well, it says on the bottle Kona Brewing Company, Kona, Hawaii, but then it also says Portland, Oregon, Woodenville, Washington, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Memphis, Tennessee. So presumably, at least some of these beers are brewed in Hawaii. But hopefully not the one we're drinking because that would be a long trip for a bottle of beer. Well, that's true. So what do you think, Dan? I think it is acceptably uh, tropical, I guess. It's a lot lighter than obviously what I would drink by choice, but it's got a good flavor to it. And it is, it, you know, sometimes you get these um, lighter beers and they get a little skunky if they sit out a while. And this one doesn't have that. Yeah. And this is a, this is a 4.4% alcohol by volume. So this definitely is a lighter beer, uh, but this really fit the bill for me, you know, wanting something lighter, something in the vicinity of Corona, but without the skunk. I feel like I want a little citrus in there. I'm glad you said that, Dan. Uh, so what I actually did by my second one, asked the bartender if I could have a slice of lime in and mine. I threw you overboard <laughs> for your outlandish request. No, so so for the rest of the cruise, uh, you could find me with uh, a big wave golden ale with a wedge of lime. Awesome. Glad to hear it. And I'm glad that you made it back and didn't fall overboard from your low-gravity beer. Well, I'm glad to be back on the mainland. And time has passed. Um, Josh, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the scientists march do you remember that episode yeah dan that's coming up this saturday so we are recording this on tuesday the 18th of april and the science march is scheduled for saturday the 22nd so this weekend yep so go back Uh, we talked about this in episode 66 should scientists march on washington you'll recall josh we had mixed feelings about it but it looks like it's going to happen and we'll be anxious to report on the outcomes are you going to go I will not be traveling to D.C. I'm running a race here in town that I'd signed up for months ago. But we're having a a satellite march in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is right down the street. And I will be attending the Raleigh Science March and the Community Science Fair that follows. Okay, well, we will expect some on-the-ground reporting from you. Yeah, and it would be awesome, too, if any of our listeners are attending the big march in D.C. or a local satellite march. We'd love to hear about your experience, so definitely let us know if you want to report from your March experience. All right, Dan, I've got some new science in the news this week. I'm ready. I teach a introductory biostats workshop for biomedical scientists, and one of the things I talk about is how, as human beings, we don't always do a good job of assessing risk probabilities. In fact, we are terrible at it. Yeah. Rule. Common things that we're afraid of, things like spiders and sharks and even flying in an airplane. Statistically speaking, it's very unlikely that those things are going to harm us. Um, however, there are other things like cancer and heart disease that it turns out, did you realize in, if you look at the number of people who died in the United States in 2010, a fourth of all people died of heart disease, and another fourth died of cancer. So really important human problems that face us these days. So Science and News this week is about one of those topics. This is about heart disease, and even more importantly, our ability to predict heart disease before it occurs. Because it turns out, if we know who is likely to have heart disease, there are preventative measures we can undertake that do a pretty good job of staving off yeah, really, really bad things like heart attacks. I think I can set the stage for how we would normally, ass- you're talking about risk, right? So the way we would normally assess this type of risk, we would do a blood panel, we'd check your cholesterol level, we'd ask, do you have a family history of heart disease? We would ask about symptoms, have you had you know, episodes of um, 
chest pain or something like that. We would find out how much you exercise, whether you've ever smoked, your body mass index. Am I missing anything? It's like a, you'd make the list, and then if you're high risk for all of these different factors, we'd say, eh, there's some chance you can have a heart attack. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dan. And so there actually are these established guidelines and established algorithm set forth by the American College of Cardiology. And, and what these are used for is to do just that, to try to prevent uh, the risk of cardiovascular disease. And, and this is important, obviously, because, again, we can save a lot of lives if we can figure out who is the most predisposed. Um, but also, it's important to note, we want to be very careful because some of these interventions we might do, things like doing surgery and putting a stent in an artery, you know, these are invasive procedures that have their own inherent risks. So, we don't just want to go around um, doing preventative measures to everyone. Everybody doesn't get a open heart quadruple <laughs> bypass. We want to avoid that. Just in case. So this study that just came out last week in PLOS One, one of my favorite journals. Of course. It examined the possibility of using machine learning to improve cardiovascular risk prediction. I'm intrigued. This is the hitchhiking robot applied to medicine? Sort of. Well, actually, it's more like, Dan, you've probably seen the news articles of these computer algorithms, these neural network computer algorithms that scientists have used to do interesting things like beat a chess wizard or win the game Go. Yeah, I've used some of them, obviously not to the extent that I could win the game Go, but the way it basically works is you have to have a lot of training data. So you give the computer all of the things that we would normally measure Plus, you have to tell it what the outcome was. Did the people have a heart attack or not? So you give it thousands, millions of records, as many as you possibly can. Then you give it a new set of data and say, okay, based on what you learned from that training data, uh, make a prediction about this group. Yep, that's exactly right, Dan. And so that's what these scientists did from the UK. What they did was they looked at almost 300,000 clinical records, and they wanted to search for patterns and build their own internal guidelines. And so what they did, they used about three-fourths of the data to search for patterns, build their guidelines for, for what criteria from these data ended up leading to patients having some sort of heart disease or heart, heart attack. And then what they did was they took the other fourth of the data um, which ended up being about 83,000 records, and, and tested their ability to actually predict in the rest of the data set who was going to have a heart attack or not. They could compare all of their machine learning algorithms to this standard ACC, AHA guideline that was in use. So that was kind of their, their baseline. And so there actually is this statistic they use. It's called the AUC. And in the AUC, a score of 1.0 signifies 100% accuracy in predicting heart disease in their data set. When they used that guideline as a, as a baseline, they found that that guideline was successful uh, in predicting about 73% of the cases. So the standard method was 73% accurate. Yeah, and I should mention in their data set, um, they were looking at individuals at a point in time when they had no um, heart disease up to that point. And then they looked at their ability to predict the first cardiovascular event over a 10-year period. So these, these standard AUC guidelines hit it 73% of the time. But what they found was these machine learning guidelines, all four that they looked at actually did better than the AUC guidelines. Um, and in fact, one of them, the neural networks algorithm, correctly predicted 7.6% more events than the standard method. And then on top of that, importantly, it actually was wrong 1.6% fewer times than the standard algorithm. 
So an improvement, I wouldn't call it like knocked it out of the park. It didn't get 99%, but it's better than the people were doing and probably a lot less stress for a computer to run your numbers than for the doctor to have to make a guess. I mean, an individual person going through these guidelines may introduce variability by themselves. Having this algorithm is maybe more consistent and more accurate. Yeah, well, another way to to put these data are in their test sample of about 83,000 records. What that would amount to, that improvement in prediction of heart disease, would amount to 355 additional patients whose lives could have been saved using this different algorithm. 355 out of 83,000. So if you're one of those 355, <laughs> you are happy about this improvement. And I think the one of the points here is um, this is the direction medicine is going. When we can get access to data like this, we can start to relieve doctors from having to you know, become fortune tellers. And I think that's really... It's a big step forward. Yeah, and it's worth noting, too, in this data set, this would have also resulted in about 100 people who maybe would have had preventative measures that didn't necessarily need them, that wouldn't have gotten them with this other way of of assessing their risk. One thing that I know about neural networks, and, and maybe they have addressed this in their particular study, I haven't read it, I'll admit, neural networks don't tell you which factors are influencing the results. The whole joy and curse of a neural network is that it is making decisions internally and it doesn't tell you how it's made the decisions. Normally you and I would, if we're going to do a regression, we'd say, Oh, this factor is influencing. So um, your body mass index has a positive correlation with your heart attack risk. And we can take that and say, well, we should probably reduce your body mass index. A neural network takes the jumble of data, adjusts some coefficients inside itself and it spits out a prediction for an individual. And it might be accurate about that prediction, but it's not telling you which part of their history is causing that risk. Yeah, that is a criticism of using this for these purposes. Because it's exactly what you said, Dan. So the scientists and the doctors, we can program in all the inputs, hear all the, the data points and metrics that we're going to examine, and then we can look at the output and see, well, how well did our program do? But what we can't do is understand how it got from point A to point B and make tweaks other than adding and taking away um, inputs and see how yep. it Im- impacts the output. Yep, that makes sense. So you're you're probing around the outsides of the causes, but you can't take what comes out of the neural network and say, oh, if you would just decrease your smoking rate by 14%, then your risk would go down. Yeah. So I think a fundamental question that this that studies like this make me think about, you know, one thing that these machine learning algorithms do is they do eliminate human bias from the equation. And very, you know, very important. I think as, as human beings, we tend to elevate our own cognitive abilities quite a bit and imagine that nuance with which we can examine problems and think about things is a real strength. And I think in a lot of cases it probably is, but I think what studies like this might be teaching us is sometimes removing that bias in a way only a computer can do can actually have positive outcomes. Yeah, I saw this in the article about the science march, but supposedly there's a poster that says, what do we want? Evidence-based policy. When do we want it? After peer review. You could replace, what do we want? Evidence-based medicine. (laughs) When do we want it? After peer review. I think we're getting to the point where we don't have to just trust that the doctors are always right because they can't be. All right, Dan, thought that was cool and just wanted to share. All right, Dan, so we are ready for part two of imposter syndrome. Yeah, last episode was a bit of a cliffhanger. We, I know, I know we felt a little bit bad, but we laid out, here's what imposter syndrome looks like, here's how it feels, 
Here's how terrible it can be. And tune in next week and we'll talk about what to do about it. Imposter right? syndrome really sucks. Good yeah. luck with that. Yeah. See you later. The time has come to really discuss some practical steps that, that people can take today, tomorrow, to manage those feelings and uh, to not feel so much anxiety about uh, being a fake or being the only person in your lab who doesn't have it all together. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing, Dan, you actually found Dr. Maureen Gannon, who is a full professor of medicine at Vanderbilt, who is an active scientist, uh, runs a research group at Vanderbilt. Um, but you you first found Dr. Gannon because of her work she had done leading workshops on imposter syndrome. And we thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, it was. Uh, I had been searching for resources and some of her presentations came up and I looked through them and she recorded in her presentations her scores on some of the imposter feelings tests and measurements. And I thought, wow, a full professor is telling other people that she's had these feelings and has dealt with them. Um, So I thought that was somebody we needed to talk to. Yeah. And she's going to mention later in the interview, this Clance questionnaire. And so we alluded last week to some of these questionnaires and surveys that you can take yourself to analyze the degree to which imposter syndrome impacts you. And I think one thing that is useful for all of us to do, I'm going to certainly do this, is we can take these and and see where we are um, on that imposter syndrome scale and then implement some of these practical tips that Dr. Gannon's going to share with us and actually see over time how the grip of imposter syndrome actually might be decreasing in our life, even if we don't feel that way. It could go up at certain times too, and then you want to yeah. be aware of it and, and deal with it. So um, if you are not arms deep in cell culture or watching frogs have sex in the wild, go online. We'll post the link. Take the quiz now and see what your score is. See how you compare. Wouldn't it be great if we wrote a machine learning algorithm to tell us how much imposter syndrome we are experiencing? Seems possible. Let's do it. (laughs) All right, Dan. So I was able to talk to Dr. Gannon yesterday and had a great chat and learned a lot. So let's listen to it. My name is Maureen Gannon, and I have a PhD in cell and developmental biology from Cornell University Medical College. And I am a professor in the Department of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, with secondary appointments in molecular physiology and biophysics and cell and developmental biology. And I run a research lab that does really basic science, uh, looking at the regulation of um, how insulin cells are produced during embryogenesis and trying to develop strategies to increase the number of insulin-producing cells um, in people who have diabetes. Mm -hmm. So it's a very basic science diabetes research lab. Very cool. Can you describe imposter syndrome as you understand it, maybe for listeners or people who aren't familiar with it? Sure. Um, so so it's, it's either called imposter syndrome or sometimes called imposter phenomenon. It's the same thing. Um, and the term was first coined by um, Dr. Pauline Clance and her colleague Susan Imes in 1978. Um, and it's important for people to realize that it's not a psychiatric disorder, but it's really a reaction that people have to particular situations, and those can vary in frequency and intensity um, where you might have these feelings at different times depending on the circumstance that you're in. And so um, the feelings associated with imposter syndrome um, are usually found in people who have uh, pretty healthy self-esteem and present themselves to their colleagues as very confident, capable people, but really they believe themselves to be less intelligent or capable than others perceive them to be. 
Um, so they attribute much of their career success uh, or, you know, gaining positions of responsibility to luck or to being in the right place at the right time. Or in particular, a lot of people who have these feelings think that they're just filling a quota, you know, oh, they needed another woman on the committee or they needed another person of this particular um, static on this committee. Um, and so they attribute it to other outside influences rather than to their own capabilities and talents. Um, and so they, individuals then who feel this way have a very strong fear of failing and disappointing others um, and that the people who ask them to be in this position or gave them this position of responsibility are going to end up feeling disappointed and feeling like they made a mistake in choosing that person who has these imposter syndrome feelings. So one thing that was interesting to me is, you know, you're obviously an active diabetes researcher at Vanderbilt, you're running your own lab, but I noticed you have, you've given presentations on imposter syndrome. What prompted you to speak publicly about this issue? Yeah, so so I had these feelings for many, many years, but I didn't know what they were called, and I thought I was the only one who had these feelings. And um, so just a little bit of my background, um, I grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood in Queens, New York, so it's technically the city, but not Manhattan. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad never went to college. Um, my mom was an elementary school teacher. Uh, and I didn't really have role models in my family. That I had nobody in my family who was in science, nobody that went to graduate school. Um, so, you know, we also had some financial difficulties growing up. We were on food stamps for a while. And so imposter syndrome tends to affect people who um, tend to come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, although not always. But the big distinguishing factor of people who have these feelings is that they're in an environment very different from their family of origin, and they're, they're pursuing careers that are very different from their family of origin. And so I had all of that um, typical background to have these sorts of feelings. And as I was moving up the ladder in my career, the feeling started to get worse and worse that I really didn't belong here because I didn't have the background um, to be suited to be in this career. And so I went to a, a workshop at the AAMC Mid-Career uh, Women's Leadership Program in December 2011, and they had a whole workshop on the imposter syndrome. So I was finally able to put a name to the feelings that I have, and they gave us some strategies to try and cope with that and to try and help others that we know who have these feelings to overcome those feelings. And so I felt since Vanderbilt had given me this great opportunity to attend this workshop, that when I came back, I felt it was, you know, really an obligation on my part to share what I had learned. So I've given this presentation to lots of different groups here at Vanderbilt, undergrads, uh, students, faculty, postdocs. What has the reception been at Vanderbilt from these different groups as you've offered these these workshops and these sessions on imposter syndrome? So actually, the, the undergrads and the, the graduate students and the postdocs, um, you know, I, I wasn't really nervous giving it to them. Uh, I didn't feel as vulnerable, uh, and the reaction was really great. You know, lots of people came up to me afterwards and said they came from similar backgrounds, and they felt, um, you know, finally they could connect with somebody who had the same feelings, and they too had thought that they were the only person having these feelings. So it was nice to see somebody who could, they could look up to kind of as a role model and somebody who was in the career that they were aspiring to who'd, you know, had these feelings and learned how to deal with them. Um, I was most nervous giving it to the faculty because <laughs> these were my peers and I was making myself vulnerable 
telling them about my background, telling them about my insecurities. Uh, and that was really hard. Uh, but actually, afterwards, people came up to me and said how much they really appreciated it. And so I've actually given the talk multiple times to faculty um, and even to our MD-PhD students. And, you know, to me, those are the cream of the crop, mm-hmm. outstanding students that we have here. And I thought, well, surely they're the most confident people on the planet. But even they really wanted somebody to come and talk to them about this because some of them have these feelings too and or know people who do so i've given the presentation to them as well now that's really great and i actually wonder how prevalent imposter syndrome is Mm -hmm. among among the faculty ranks because i think what you said is true it's so important for trainees to hear from the people above them the people in the positions they're aspiring to, to hear that they are actually dealing with some of these same and have dealt with some of these same issues. But I'm always curious to what degree um, imposter syndrome does affect the faculty. Yeah. So, you know, I don't do research in this area, so I can't really give you any statistics. Um, According to the workshop that I attended with the AAMC, originally it was thought that really only women um, had these sorts of feelings. Uh, But it's become clear through the research with Dr. Clance and Dr. Imes that men have these feelings um, pretty commonly as well. And that's been my experience in the talks that I've given. You know, a lot of men have come up to me afterwards and said that they had these feelings. I can't give you any mm-hmm. numbers, um, but I, I've given the presentation to our group here called Women on Track, which is sponsored by our Office of Faculty Affairs for the female faculty mm-hmm. in the medical center. And um, I think that's been probably the best well-received, and I've actually given it to them a couple times um, as new faculty are hired. Uh, you know, after a few years, I give the presentation again. And I think that's been really helpful to that group in particular. So one thing I wanted to ask, um, so graduate school and academic research in particular can be really challenging, and it seems like in some ways could possibly exacerbate some lingering feelings of imposter syndrome because failure is so prevalent. It's almost part of the, Mm -hmm. it's part of the game. Do you you think that imposter syndrome might be more prevalent in graduate school and academia than it might be in other sectors? So, you know, I I can't speak to that. You know, I don't have numbers on that, but I can tell you that given the fact that people who have these feelings usually come from um, a family of origin that might be lower socioeconomic or um, have more, um, typical traditional roles for males and females in terms of the types of careers that their um, relatives uh, have pursued. I think it's probably very prevalent in anyone pursuing higher education. Um, So, you know, whether you're going to law school or you're going to be an MD or you're pursuing a PhD uh, and doing research in either the, the biological sciences or social sciences, I think once you're in that situation where what you're pursuing is very different from what you grew up with that, you know, you will be somebody who's susceptible to these types of feelings. Mm -hmm. So I know for a fact, because we hear from our listeners that there certainly are people who will listen to this interview who are struggling with imposter syndrome right Mm -hmm. now. And I know part of having imposter syndrome is wanting to, wanting to hide that from your colleagues and peers Right. What do you think are some of the consequences of letting imposter syndrome run its course and, and remain hidden? Yeah, I think it can definitely hinder your career advancement and hinder your success. So if you want to be viewed as perfect all the time and you're afraid of people um, seeing you make a mistake or you're afraid of being perceived as less competent than pe- you think that people think you are, 
um, what you can end up doing is setting lower expectations for yourself and a lower bar for yourself because then it's less likely that you're going to fail. Um, and what that will do ultimately is by avoiding failure, you also avoid success. And so feelings of imposter syndrome can limit your ability to advocate for yourself in your career. It can um, hinder your ability to negotiate for yourself, uh, particularly in the sciences when you're trying to negotiate for a startup package or negotiate for promotion. If you constantly have this feeling of, oh, I'm not really good enough to be here, you're not going to really put yourself out there and, and advocate for what you really need and what you really deserve. And so learning how to overcome these feelings, I think, is really important for your career advancement. So you mentioned that this is something that you have dealt with uh, during your career. How did, you, how did you manage it or overcome it? And what advice would you maybe give to others who are out there, other trainees in particular, who might be struggling with imposter syndrome? Yeah. So, so first of all, I think, you know, recognizing it in yourself is, is step number one. And then being able to talk about it maybe with your peers and your colleagues. And I think, um, you know, we have a tendency to, when people give a seminar or they present their work, you know, we say, oh, great job. That was a great talk. And then if, if, if critiques become, um, things that we don't trust, if they're things that we just say without any depth to the, to the critique, then people don't really trust the feedback. And so I think getting honest feedback and honest critiques from your peers when you do a good job and when you don't do a good job and being able to share those feelings with each other. So you give critiques to your peers and vice versa and that those critiques are true and honest, then you can start to really believe when people do give you a compliment that it's not just offhand and a, and a reaction, but that it really means something. And you can start to internalize those compliments rather than feeling like, oh, they're just saying that they don't mean it, or they gave me this opportunity because they needed another woman on the committee or for whatever reason. Um, so I think getting honest feedback and talking with your colleagues uh, is really important, number one. Number two, there's a saying called fake it till you make it. <laughs> so, so imagining yourself, you know, getting up there and giving your presentation or, or whatever responsibility it is that you have coming up in your life, imagining in your head using this technique called creative visualization, which I've been using for many years now, and imagining, you know, you doing a good job. And, and being competent and getting good feedback. And just the more you act out those positive uh, roles and positive feelings, the more you start to believe them and internalize them. I think that helps a lot. So visualizing in your mind the successful, confident person you want to be mm -hmm. and imagining how a project or a presentation will go in your mind helps you to then successfully complete that project and, and realize that goal. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good advice. So um, if your, your listeners can, can go ahead and use that questionnaire, that the CLANS questionnaire, and score themselves and see how, uh, how intense and frequent their feelings of imposter syndrome are. And, and when they get their score at the end of filling out the questionnaire, I want them to realize that you know whatever that number is, that's not a fixed thing. So when I first took the questionnaire in 2011 at the AAMC workshop, I scored an 80, which is pretty bad. I mean, I had pretty frequent and intense feelings about this imposter syndrome. And um, as I started giving talks and doing more of the exercises that um, were suggested, I took the test again a year later and it was down to 70. And then I just took it again last year and now I'm in the 40s. 
So, uh, so definitely sometimes still have these feelings, but they're a lot less frequent. They're a lot less intense. And doing these exercises that I've suggested and, and reading the creative visualization and acting out on those has been really helpful. So, are there any resources that you would recommend for people who want to learn, learn more about imposter syndrome? Yeah, so, so um, Dr. Clance has a book uh, that she published in 1985 called The Imposter Phenomenon, When Success Makes You Feel Like a Fake. So, that's one book. Um, there's another book that was recommended to us when I attended that AAMC workshop. It's called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, and it's by Valerie Young. Uh, and granted, this book is, is only um, about women who have these feelings, but they're very successful women like Meryl Streep and other people who have suffered from these feelings um, and how they've overcome it. So that's kind of an empowering book. And then in terms of, of the fake it till you make it, the book Creative Visualization by Shakti Gawain, G-A-W-A-I-N, mm-hmm. that's a book that I read uh, and have reread. Uh, and still practice those um, creative visualization concepts in my own life. So I'd recommend that as well. Yeah, those are great resources, and we'll make sure we we post all those in our show notes. Is there anything else you you would want to say to our listening audience, to grad students and postdocs who might be listening to this interview? Yeah, I think it's important that they realize that they aren't alone, that a lot of people have these feelings. And People that you might think on the outside appear very confident and to have it all together, probably at some point, maybe not as frequently as others, have had these feelings. And so, you know, this is very common, um, so, so not to feel alone. But also, you know, really, it doesn't matter. You know, as a woman in academic medicine, you know, there's not very many of me, and so I get asked to do a lot of things. Maybe some of the things I got asked to do was because they needed another woman. But in the end, how you got there doesn't really matter. You're there. And so once you're there, just give it your best and, and make the most of every opportunity that you're given because you're the only one who has control over the outcomes of those opportunities. Um, so make the most of those and just to realize ultimately you're the one who has control of your path in life. That's fantastic. Um, Dr. Gannon, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. You're very welcome. All right, Dan, that was my conversation with Dr. Gannon. Thank you so much, Dr. Gannon. That is, uh, I think it's really refreshing. It's very inspiring to have somebody speak candidly about this. Um, The tendency is to turn inward and try and hide it. And that's really part of the, the symptom of those feelings is don't let anybody know that I feel this way. And if I can just keep the ruse going, maybe nobody will ever find out. Yeah, and I thought it was so key and really important for trainees like the undergrad level and grad students and postdocs to really hear that someone, even at the faculty level, these people that we look up to, that we think have it all together, um, that they also struggle with some of these things. I know I mentioned on the last episode, that was really important for me to hear that my own PI dealt with some of these same insecurities that I was dealing with. So I think it's great when people like Dr. Gannon can really put themselves out there and be transparent, really not just with the trainees, but even with their own colleagues. I know that had to be a scary moment to get up and talk about that in front of your colleagues. But um, it really strikes me, she is probably better off than most of the people that our listeners will run into because she has faced it and addressed it and taken some steps that she talked about to manage it. I'm, I'm going to 
guarantee that yes, uh, your PI and people in your department are feeling this, but I'm, I doubt that they've talked about it, that they've worked through some of the feelings. Um, they're probably in the middle of it, even if they are full professors. One thing she said that really stuck out to me was she used this phrase, by avoiding failure, you also avoid success. And I thought that was just a really important thing to keep in mind that sometimes when we are in the throes of imposter syndrome, we can tend to set our own personal bar lower because we're so afraid of failure that we don't put ourselves out there. We don't challenge ourselves, And effectively, all we're doing is we're avoiding our own potential for success. I, I had that experience in grad school. Certainly, I remember very distinctly there was um, a summer program that a lot of people in my department applied to and tried to go to. And it was like a microscopy six-week summer course. And uh, I remember people coming back from it describing, oh, it's really intense. You work till 10 p.m. and then you might go get some food and come back to the lab and keep working. And there was kind of an expectation that I would apply. As I was thinking about this, I was like, how am I going to go and work for 12 hours a day in this microscopy symposium or workshop and not have all these people find out that I am not like them, that I'm not part of this same community. And, you know, it just, it just twisted my stomach up thinking about um, how I would react to that and how hard it would be. And how was I going to tell my PI that I didn't want to apply to this thing and I couldn't, and oh, those feelings were so awful. Um, But that fear of going on that that trip um, maybe kept me from learning something new or meeting some cool people. And maybe I would have hated it. I don't know. But yeah, I, but, I, I yeah, go, maybe yeah. it's something you would have really enjoyed. Really it's would've. totally possible. And I'm sure there are other people um, that you've got these opportunities. You know, you're looking at two labs for your your rotation. And one of them is pretty relaxed and they'll leave you alone. And the other one is more intense, but maybe publishes in higher impact journals and, and does uh, stronger research you might shy away from the more intense, stronger research lab because you don't want to be found out. Yeah, absolutely. I thought she gave some great, great tips, great practical things that that people could do if you're struggling with, with imposter syndrome, things like positive visualization, really almost changing those negative thoughts, turning those negative thoughts around by imagining yourself having these really positive outcomes, doing a great job on that talk, um, going to that workshop and really getting a lot out of it. I thought that was great. Um, One thing that I had to think a little bit about was she mentioned the importance of seeking out critical feedback from friends and colleagues. Yeah, that seems weird to me. It's the last thing I would want. Yeah, I thought that. And then I thought back to Something that was really helpful to me during my training, actually so much that I have instituted it into training programs that that I work with now, and that is the ability to, or that is the opportunity to present a scientific talk to your your peers, to the group of students. Like we do this uh, with the program I run, we do this with all of our first year grad students. And basically you give a short talk on your research and then you immediately get feedback from the group Um, really detailed feedback on how you could improve your talk. And on one hand, that sounds a little scary that you're going to get your talk torn down, um, but it's by your friends and your your peers and it happens to everybody. So um, I remember thinking, wow, that was really useful to have that feedback in a safe environment before you get out there uh, in the wild, I guess, (laughs) giving talks. Nobody throws tomatoes or makes fun of you during, they don't heckle. I, I don't bring any produce. Slide number two is ugly. <laughs> yeah. 
something. Comic Sans. No, don't do it. Well, if you put Comic Sans, you deserve to be heckled. <laughs> but then the other thing I thought was cool was uh, her mentioning, you know, really charting your your progress um, in your own journey to overcome imposter syndrome. Just collecting data on yourself, taking the the questionnaire, seeing what your baseline is, and um, you know, maybe you'll do that and you'll realize you know what, I've, I'm not dealing with this right now, and that's great. But if you do get a high score, don't let it get you down, but realize there are resources out there to help you. You got a high score! <laughs> that's Hooray! Right. You're the winner! Yeah. No, that's that's right. And I, it's it's almost like her approach is the scientist's approach, but she's she's studying herself. And I think this is one of the, the tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, you say, yeah, I do feel this way, but the way that I'm feeling is not the entirety of my reality, and I, it's not helpful for me, and I don't want to feel this way. So um, you, you notice it. You notice that when I'm applying for this summer research program, I'm feeling my stomach twist up. That's weird. That must mean I have all of these uh, anxieties about being found out as an imposter. And then, you know, you, you choose to see things a different way. And this is what you talked about, the creative visualization. And then you take the steps. You do the next thing that you would do as the person you're trying to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so she says, fake it till you make it. But I think it's, um, it's, it's just looking at yourself from the outside. It's charting your progress. It's saying, this is not who I am. This is something that I feel and I can do something about it. Yeah. And it's almost changing your, your narrative. And just... Yeah. And don't try to do it alone. I, I think that's another important thing is that um, you need people around you who are also going through this. Yeah, I mean, I almost see it as, you know, let's say you are struggling with, oh, the only reason I was chosen for this was they, you know, they needed someone from my specific people group or, oh, it's just because I'm in so-and-so's lab that this person wants me for a postdoc. You know, you can change that narrative to, you know what, right now I'm feeling, um, I'm struggling with feelings of imposter syndrome. Call it out for what it is versus coming up with these false narratives that that really just bring you down. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's true. So hopefully that was helpful. Um, If you have faced these imposter feelings, if you've faced imposter syndrome, um, and let's say you've come through it, you found some techniques to manage it, you found some good resources, uh, please share them with us and we'll we'll tweet them, we'll add them to the show notes so that other people can find out because Every, everything helps. Anybody who's come up with a technique to deal with this is going to be helpful. Um, if you have faced this and you have not gotten through it, again, I think connecting with other people around you, your peers in your lab, talking about it helps. Um, but you can also write to us, tweet to us. We would love to um, kind of walk with you through it just in terms of giving you the resources you need and maybe telling your story because I think that opens it up and and makes it available for everybody else to learn from and to feel better about it. Absolutely. And Dr. Gannon mentioned some some resources, some books that she found helpful. So we will certainly put a link to those in the show notes as well as a link to the Clance questionnaire. All right, Dan, what do you have for us for the etymology puzzle? A clue last week. Sometimes it takes more than friction to rub cells from a culture dish. It may also take this. You did some cell culture, didn't you, Josh? Oh, yeah. I did plenty of cell culture. I wish there were more podcasts back when I was in grad school because I would there certainly have listened to them. It was NPR 24 hours a day. Yeah, I was actually talking to a grad student today who studies frog sex, by the way. And she was talking about how she listened to our podcast while 
scooping up tadpoles from a tank. Yeah. Yeah. So it made me think, I wonder all the different things that people do while they listen to our podcast. It's probably interesting. It probably is. So take yourself back in time. You've got the cells in the dish. You can't can't get them out of there. You you don't want to scrape them out because it'll kill them. What do Mm -hmm. you do? I would put some trypsin on them. And trypsin is the correct answer. It is an enzyme. I think one of the first enzymes ever described. And it comes from the Greek trypsis, rubbing or friction. Supposedly, the way that we got this word trypsin to describe this enzyme is because uh, it, it is produced in the pancreas. And supposedly, the people who isolated it back in the 1860s rubbed the pancreas with glycerin and somehow trypsin came out. So they did experiments um, proving that it was... Uh, they could take these pancreatic extracts and put them on on um, proteins and it would not digest them. But then over time, it would be activated and then it would be inactivated. And so it's the first description of how uh, enzymes actually work. And I came to it because last week's clue was pancreas. And this week, it's the enzyme that comes from the pancreas. Etymological crossover. I love it when a plan comes together. I do too. And the etymology puzzle is on hiatus because I just haven't written one this week. That's fair, Dan. That is totally okay. But what's not on break is us looking for topics for future shows. So if you've got something you want to talk about or feedback on a past show, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can send us a tweet or reach out through our Facebook page. You know what, Dan? I actually would love to know what people really do while listening to our podcast, especially if you listen while you're in the lab or doing your research type things. So if you've got something cool that you do while you listen to the show, tweet at us this week. We'd love to hear about it at HelloPhD. Shout out to everybody in the mouse room. What, what? (laughs) If you're using trypsin right now while listening to this, definitely let us know. Uncanny. And uh, please stay in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Let us know how the science march goes if you happen to attend. Definitely. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to help us support the cost of the show, we would be very grateful. You can support us at our Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash hellophd or click on the become a patron button on our website. All right, Josh. Well, thank you for sharing your tropical beer from your uh, recent vacation. I don't know when I'll go on vacation again, but this is at least a good proxy. This is the closest you're going to get. Closest I'm going to get, yeah. Uh, next time I'll bring a lime wedge. All right, Dan. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Thank you.